our second Bible reading and the Bible reading that Dan will be preaching on is Matthew chapter 5, 1 to 16. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Thanks, Hannah, for reading the Bible. Good morning, everyone else. As Gav said earlier, uh, my name's Dan, uh, and I'm the student minister within the parish, and I've loved being here uh, and serving uh, God's people. The other day, I was walking through Moore College, the library there at the college, and I was looking for some information, and I found a book, and the book was titled, The Great Sermons of the World. Now, it was written by a man who's a great preacher himself. The book has got sermons by the Apostle Peter, Martin Luther, if you know him, John Wesley, John Calvin, and heaps of other people. Now, can you guess what the first sermon in the book is? Anyone want to have a stab at that? Or who it was said by or written? The Sermon on the Mount by Jesus Christ. That was number one in this book. The Sermon on the Mount, which we'll begin covering today. Uh, we're not, I'm not going to cover all of it because it goes from chapter 5 through to chapter 7. Now, the sermon is the most studied sermon in the world. I couldn't believe it. There are thousands upon thousands of books and articles and videos and other material. I went to Sydney Uni and their library, and they even had more things than we did. Sadly, though, there is so much confusion about the sermon, and there are many different interpretations and explanations of Jesus' sermon that haven't been helpful. For example, many people look at the sermon and they say, see, Jesus didn't preach grace, or at least didn't preach grace alone is the argument. He preached a works-based righteousness. Others look at the sermon and they say, well, 
Jesus preached this before his death and before his resurrection, and so we consider it as part of the old covenant and doesn't apply to Christians today. Safe to say there's much confusion going on about the sermon and there's a lot of debate, but there doesn't need to be. Now with that said, we should pray to our Heavenly Father and then we will dig in to see the Sermon on the Mount, or at least the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. So will you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much uh, for the words of Scripture. We thank you so much that Jesus stood up and he spoke. We thank you for this wonderful sermon, Lord. I pray, Lord, that you would condescend in our midst, that you would be with me as I speak clearly, remove any bias from me, and allow me to speak and teach the truth. Allow us to be encouraged by the Lord Jesus' words as we go out and live for him. Amen. All right, let's see if we can clear up the confusion, be encouraged at the same time, or maybe made feel uncomfortable. That's okay. Um, so let's begin by looking at verse 1. So if you have your Bibles with you, please keep them open. If you don't, get them out. Uh, if it's an iPhone, pull that out as well. I trust that you won't be texting people. That's fine. I, uh, you know, I know. Look with me at verse 1. Verse 1 says, Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. Now this interested me a bit. The audience here from this verse and the preceding chapter is probably showing that there are kind of two concentric circles going on here. That there's like an inner circle where the disciples are, and there's the outer circle where the crowds were or are. You see, just before this, in chapter 4, you probably covered this last week, we're told that Jesus went throughout Galilee teaching in synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. He was healing people, healing all types of diseases and sickness. And because of that, people, like the news spread all over Galilee and even beyond, and large crowds began to follow him. This is kind of what happens here, actually. The, the preaching that Gavin preaches, he preaches primarily to the disciples but he knows that there are onlookers and he's praying that the Lord Jesus would use the word uh, to convict them and call them into the beautiful grace of Jesus Christ. So verse 1 tells us that Jesus took a step back. He taught his disciples. But the disciples aren't the only ones listening. If we look at the end of chapter 7 in, in the sermon, it's clear that the crowds are listening and that Jesus wanted them to listen even though the sermon was primarily addressed to his disciples. Now, with the disciples gathered at his feet and the crowds listening, in Jesus begins his sermon. And he begins by pronouncing a certain kind of person blessed. Now, we call these pronouncements Beatitudes. Beatitudes. Now, the first thing you'll notice about the Beatitudes is that they all begin with the word blessed. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn and so on. Now, some modern translations translate the word blessed as happy. Happy are those who are poor in spirit. Kind of makes sense. Happy are those who mourn. Quite strange. Happy are those who mourn. Being blessed is being more than happy. There are people who are blessed who at a particular moment in time are not happy. And sadly, there are many deluded people in our world walking around as happy as Larry who are far from being blessed because they've rejected God and the message of his son. So to be blessed is more than happy. It actually means to be approved by God, to have or find God's favor, 
The blessed person is the person who God looks upon favorably. So Jesus isn't declaring, you know, how people feel in this passage. He's making a statement, an objective statement about what God thinks of this person. Now, what the Beatitudes also make clear before we dig into them is that the greatest blessing of all is to be part of God's kingdom. How do we know this? Look at the first and the last Beatitude in the list. Verse 3 is the first and verse 10 is the last. Verse 3 says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And the last one says, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The words repeated again, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. These verses are like bookends of the blessings. So to be blessed by God means to have a place in his kingdom, to be one of his children. And so the verses in between the other Beatitudes are describing parts of that blessing, parts of the blessing of being part of the kingdom of heaven. For example, in the kingdom of heaven, we will all know God's wonderful comfort. In the kingdom of heaven, we will inherit the earth, the wonderful new creation, a place where there will be no more pain. I'm looking forward to that. No more sin. Also looking forward to that. No more tears, suffering. And friends, in the kingdom of heaven, we will live with God as children with their father, as heirs with the father who loves them. Now, I want to pause. I want to reflect for a moment. I want to say this. Friends, this is your hope. If you are a believer in Christ, this is your hope. It is the most wonderful hope there is. This is what we look forward to if we are followers of Jesus. We are part of God's kingdom, a place where he gives us comfort and joy and he declares us to be his children. This is mind-blowing. I never, ever want you to ever forget it. Now, I don't care if you've been a Christian for 50 years or you were converted yesterday. It's mind-blowing. Words can't capture how wonderful it is to be blessed by God, that is, to be part of His kingdom. That's enough of the pause and reflection. Back to the Beatitudes. The last thing I want to say about them, and then we will get stuck into them, is that the Beatitudes, and this is often a mistake a lot of people have made in the past, are not describing eight different types of people. They're not describing eight different types of people. The Beatitudes describe one particular person. They describe a person who is a citizen of the kingdom of heaven already. They're not a checklist of things non-believers need to tick off in order to get in. However, although they're not a checklist for non-believers to use to get in, they can be used by believers to kind of, I don't know, assess or determine whether or not they're living in line with their citizenship of the kingdom. And Jesus' point in these verses is, well, here's a description of a person who is blessed by God. Here are the characteristics of a person who is a member of God's kingdom. Now, if you're someone who trusts and follows Christ, you're someone who is a believer, because that's how you enter God's kingdom, by coming to faith, by coming in faith to Christ, then this is what he says we will look like. So you'll see there in your outline, if you've got it, I've put the heading, the norms of the kingdom, the norms of the kingdom. We're going to look briefly now at the Beatitudes. And for the sake of time, there are eight of them. I will not be covering all eight, but we will be covering the ones that have been subject to much discussion, much confusion. In fact, I'm going to be covering at least five. Let's have a look at the first one, or the Beatitude of the kingdom. 
Look with me at verse 3. Jesus says in verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, what does it mean to be poor in spirit? Now, it's good to say what it's not. Jesus is not talking about our bank accounts, our cars, our material possessions. He's also not referring to what I call showy humility. Kind of like a fictional character I came across the other day in a novel who kept reminding people that he was a very, very, very humble person. So what does it mean? Poor in spirit is the acknowledgement, the personal acknowledgement of spiritual bankruptcy. It's about recognizing our true spiritual need and our true spiritual state before God himself. It's kind of like the attitude uh, and that humility before God that doesn't pretend that God owes us something, um, that doesn't pretend that we can actually even impress God with our works, but instead that it knows we need God's mercy, God's grace, and God's forgiveness. Now, the best illustration of this is in the Bible. And most of you know the story. It's found uh, of the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector in Luke 18, where the Pharisee rocks up to the temple and he says, look at me, God, aren't I great? I'm so thankful that I'm not like those sinners over there. Sorry, sorry, guys, I'm not referring to you guys. (laughs) I'll reverse it in the next illustration. And then the other man, he walks in the tax collector, and we all know, the reader knows, and everyone else knows, this guy's a sinner. He can't even look up at God. He gets down on his knees and he says, God, have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. And Jesus says, which one of those two went home justified? He could have or might have even said, which one of those two went home blessed? Answer, not the self-righteous Pharisee. It is the sinner who was poor in spirit. Now, as I was thinking about this, I thought I'd chuck this in there. Poverty in spirit is not low self-esteem. It's actually far from it. The poor in spirit, the believers, actually often have a healthy self-esteem because they find who they are in God rather than in, in themselves. It's genuinely recognizing our sin and our need for God's grace. And every true believer knows this. And that's why we come to Jesus in faith, because we recognize our need for forgiveness. And that's why we cling to his cross. I thought, how could I restate this verse to help kind of, I don't know, cement it into our minds? I made it a bit longer, because that's how you do it, right? Here's how you can restate this verse. Blessed are those who realize that they have nothing within themselves to commend themselves to God. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who realize that they have nothing within themselves to commend them to God. That's the first one. The next one, or the second beatitude, or norm of the kingdom, is mourning. Look with me at verse 4. Jesus says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. You know, some people have taken this as if to say that, you know, if you mourn, God will one day make you happy. Like, that's the condition. You mourn, and God will make you happy. He's not saying that. And he's not saying that all mourning will be comforted as well. And in fact, he's not saying that Christians need to be or are to be permanently miserable, mopey, unhappy, depressed, and weepy. You know, I had a joke at this point, and my wife said, don't put it in. Now, I've brought it up, I've got to tell you. Christians, well, 
shouldn't be like the stereotype, you know, when they, oh, I'm doing it, Bill, I'm sorry. Um, you know, when they look at a horse and go, that horse must be Christian because it's got a long face, right? She goes, that's a dad joke. And I said, oh, I'm a dad. I, I can use him now. Anyway. Right. So don't use it at Harrington Park next week? No? Okay, cool. Thank you. Bell, you were right. I confess in front of everybody you were right. The point here about the morning is Jesus is making a contrast between the attitude of the people who live for the kingdom and the attitude of the people who live for this world. We all know this. Our world lives for pleasure. You don't have to look far to see this. Our world says, look after number one. Make yourself happy. That's what life is all about. This world thinks to be blessed is to be happy, satisfied, have everything you want. It doesn't matter what carnage you leave behind. But Jesus reminds us, he's saying that if you are part of my kingdom already, you'll be characterized by mourning. But here's the question, what is mourning here? A kingdom citizen, according to Christ, will mourn at two levels. This is what I believe. Level one, an individual and personal level, and a global, more general level. At the individual level, the mourning is personal grief over personal sin, because we've acknowledged that we're poor in spirit. Is the morning experienced by a believer who begins to recognize more and more and understand more and more the darkness of their own heart and sin, the more they are exposed to the purity of God. That's the personal level. The global level, it has to do with the sin of this world, the effects of sin in this world. People of God mourn for the sins and the blasphemies of the nations around us we mourn for the erosion of the very concept of truth that we're seeing. We mourn over greed. We mourn over the lack of integrity. We mourn over injustice and cruelty and selfishness. And we mourn over the blatant idol worship that we see that makes up so much of the people of the world who don't pay the respect and honor due to their creator who created them and actually allows them the, to vi live in the very universe he created. Friends, Christians rightfully mourn, but I want to tell you there is good news. They will be and are, but will be ultimately comforted. And what a comfort it is. There is no comfort or joy that can compare with what God gives to those who trust and follow Jesus, who acknowledge that they're poor in spirit. Friends, a citizen of the kingdom of heaven grieves over their sin because it sees how great an offense it is before God. But at the same time, that person learns to trust Jesus all the more as the one who has paid sin's ransom. The people of God remember that they have nothing to commend themselves before God but to trust in Christ who is slowly shaping them to be more the citizen of the kingdom. The next norm, we're going to skip one. I'm going to go to the fourth beatitude here. The fourth norm of the kingdom. It can be found in verse 6. And here's where Jesus says, and by the way, sorry, if you have questions about the Beatitudes I've missed, please speak to me. I have a lot to say about them, and I'm sure Gav has a lot to say about them as well. They're, not, they're equally important. I haven't said these are the most important and the other ones aren't. Uh, so yeah, please speak to one of us or anyone else for that matter. Verse 6, the fourth Beatitude, it says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Now, nutritionists often dramatize the importance of diet. They tell us we are what we eat. Here's the thinking, right? If we eat too many donuts, 
John, you love donuts. Portuguese tarts, to which I am, uh, yeah, I love them as well. The thinking is we will become walking pastries. Now, the argument's pretty sound, right? Like, as far as it goes. But if we take that argument and apply it in the spiritual realm, you are what you eat, it's a little bit more piercing, a little bit more uncomfortable. For example, if you feed on the things of the world, such as, I don't know, violence, erotica, materialism, self, whatever it might be, we take that and we apply it. It's basically saying that we will eventually characterize these things and personify them. That is, you will become what you eat. But if we are citizens of the kingdom because we've put our trust in the Lord Jesus, our nature has been changed, then naturally we will present an appetite for things that are righteousness or righteous things. That is, we will by nature be hungry and thirsty for things to do with God. And we will be actively working to personify those same things. So righteousness here means a pattern of life in conformity to God's will. The person who hungers, who thirsts for righteousness, hungers and thirsts to be conformed more and more into God's will. Now only those who are in relationship with God already through faith in Christ will characterize this and will delight in the word of God because that's where God's will is found. And what's the result? Those who hunger, those who thirst, will be filled with righteousness. It's God's promise that he will continue to shape you and me more and more into the image of his son. But just like eating food every day, we can't get full now for the rest of our life. We've got to eat again the next day. And so what this is saying is that we continue to ask God and we continue to seek righteousness every day. And God promises to continue to fill us in that as he continues to shape us until the day the Lord Jesus returns. The fifth beatitude, kingdom citizens will be marked by mercy. Verse 7, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Mercy is about how we treat people who are in help or in need. And doesn't God show us incredible mercy? I mean, we're helpless, aren't we? We are helpless standing before him, and yet he sends his son, he offers forgiveness to us and mercy, and he draws us to him. And the point Jesus makes so often, if you know the mercy of God, it will show itself in the way you treat other people. The best illustration of this, also found in the Bible, the parable of a man forgiven a great debt. It's in Matthew 18, if you want to write that down for later, where there was a man where there was a man who in our language owed billions of dollars. And he was forgiven of him and he was set free from his debt. And this man was rejoicing and he walked outside and he was pretty happy. And the other man who owed him the equivalent of about a thousand bucks came up and said, I can't pay it. And the man said to him, I'm going to throw you in jail. I'm going to take all your possessions until you can pay me my thousand bucks. Now, when we read that, we are absolutely disgusted by it, aren't we? And that's what Jesus meant us to be. We say, how on earth, if you found that mercy, if you've been forgiven a billion dollars, how could you hold a debt of a thousand bucks against another person? And we're disgusted about it until we see our own hearts. Why do I say that? Because too often, and I know this true to be true, because I'm guilty of this as well. 
we know the forgiveness of God who has forgiven us all our sins, yet all too often we hold a grudge against the person who sins against us. So the question I ask myself, and I want us all to ask, as kingdom citizens, are we quick to forgive or are we quick to demand our rights? Are we compassionate to others, like the Lord was to us, or are we impatient with others? Because kingdom citizens are marked by mercy. Now I'm going to skip a few more Beatitudes and I'm going to go straight to the last one because we've got three other verses after this as well. The final norm of the kingdom. Look at me at verse 10, the, the end bookmark or bookend. Jesus says, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This Beatitude is stated for us briefly there in verse 10, if you've got your Bibles open, and then it is expanded and explained in more detail in verses 11 and 12. Often people think there are nine Beatitudes because they see another blessed after this. But what's happening is Jesus is stating it here and he's expanding upon it next. In essence, what he's saying is to be persecuted for righteousness is to be persecuted or insulted or have false things said about you because you choose to stand and side with Christ at work, at school, at the shops, wherever, because you choose to live God's way. You choose to be different to the world around you because you have a changed nature. Notice that it doesn't say, blessed are those who are persecuted because they are arrogant know-it-alls. Because, you know, there are some people who get persecuted. It's not saying that. Notice that it doesn't say, blessed are those who are persecuted because they are rude and obnoxious. The persecution Jesus is talking about and for which believers are, as his words, rejoice and be glad, isn't a persecution that comes from being annoying or insulting or rude or crude or a nuisance. It's persecution because they're living as kingdom citizens. They live for Christ. They seek his righteousness. It's seen by the world and the world hates it. Just like they hated Jesus. Friends, if a Christian lives as a citizen of the kingdom, the promise is we will be persecuted in one way, shape, or form. But Jesus says that we are to rejoice when that happens. Now, I'm not saying that it shouldn't hurt you. I'm not saying, oh, yeah, that doesn't hurt because, you know, it should hurt. But count yourself blessed. Because we're in the company of those faithful before us, as he says in verse 12. And secondly, we have a great reward in heaven. That should change the perspective of things now I want to stop here I want to ask another kind of self-reflecting question for all of us how do you feel about the norms of the kingdom we've just covered think about it how do you feel how do you feel right now uh, the reason why I ask that is because at this point you could or might be in danger of walking out of here saying oh so to enter the kingdom of heaven I need to be more poor in spirit I need to be more meek or I need to mourn more. Now look, I hope, and I, I pray that, I mean, I, I take it Gav does, he hopes that we all hunger and seek these things. But that's not how we enter the kingdom of heaven. We enter the kingdom of heaven by coming to Jesus in faith. The point of the sermon is to make us say, I want to be like that, but I'm not, and so I need God's forgiveness one for me at the cross. Friends, I pray that these verses have been encouraging but at the same time, challenging. I pray they've been comforting, but at the same time, uncomfortable. I hope you looked at yourself and said, they describe me, this is awesome, but they also don't describe me at times. 
If that's you, it is me, I can guarantee you that, then listen to the Sermon on the Mount because that's its point. On the one hand, it's saying, live for the kingdom. If you're a follower of Jesus, seek to live his way. These are the marks of the kingdom. Seek to be one of his people. Continue to live this way. But even more than that, it's meant to create in us the poverty of spirit, the first beatitude we discussed earlier. It's meant to make us say, I need God's grace. I need God's mercy. I need his forgiveness to smash away my pride and help me trust in him. We've now reached the final point of our passage. And you'll see there in the outline, I've put the heading, the witness of the kingdom. The witness of the kingdom. Look with me in verses 13 through to 16. Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. And neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Friends, these verses are so closely tied to verses 1 to 12, which we just covered. In, the, in 1 to 12, we notice that the Beatitudes describe the norms of the kingdom. And in these verses, you're going to see how those same people, kingdom citizens, witness to that kingdom. Now, these verses reveal that it's impossible to follow the norms that we just discussed in a purely private way. What I mean by that, the righteousness of the life you live and we live will attract attention, even if that attention is in the form of opposition, as we saw in the persecution beatitude. In other words, the Christian who's not poor in, who's poor in spirit, mournful, uh, mournful over sin, meek, hungry and thirsty for righteousness and all of those things, he's not that in isolation. These kingdom norms, when they lived out in a sinful world, they make up a major aspect of our witness. And this witness will give rise to persecution. But what's beautiful about what these verses do is Jesus develops two images to illustrate how us disciples, how kingdom citizens, should consider themselves, should see themselves, should see how they function in this world. Number one, they are to be like salt, verse 13. What does salt do? It flavors food. It preserves some foods from decaying. At least it did back then when they didn't have fridges. And it makes a person thirsty. We're called to do similar things. Make others thirsty for the life that is being found in Jesus Christ because of how we live for the Savior at work, at school, out and about, with our neighbors, with our family. If we live as kingdom citizens, and we live out those Beatitudes as best as we can with God's grace, we will make people thirsty. And at the same time, we will preserve the world to some degree from decaying and going into utter chaos through God's sovereignty. It also says we're to be like light that can't be hidden in verses 14 and 16. Christians are to be like a city on a hill or a lamp that is placed on a stand to provide illumination for a household. Friends, salt is a value and light is something that is noticed or stands out. We who are citizens of the kingdom are both. and We should continue to seek to be both 
in every situation God has us in. We must be both. But the only reason that we will be able to function as salt is that we are joined to Jesus Christ and receive our saltiness, that's the word, from him. And the only reason we will be like light is that we will have received our light from Jesus himself. I'll give you an illustration that makes this point clear, or a little bit clearer, I hope. There's a fellow believer who used to say that when Christ was in the world, he was a bit like the sun, S-U-N, which is here by day and it's gone by night. The sun gives light, but when the sun goes down, the moon comes up. The moon, he says, is a bit like the church, the citizens of the kingdom. The moon shines as well, but it only shines because it reflects the sun's light. And Jesus said, I, as in he, not me, I am the light of this world. But when he was thinking that he was soon going to be taken out of this world, what did he tell his disciples? You are the light of the world. We are the light of the world. Friends, do you see yourself that way? Do you consider yourself as salt and light of this world? Or do we consider ourselves as someone who is pathetic or not influential and has nothing to offer this dying and sinful world? I want to leave you with this encouragement, friends. Jesus says, you are, not you will be, you are the salt, you are the light of this world. You are, as kingdom citizens, blessed, approved by God. He's smiling at you. And if you live in accordance with this citizenship, the kingdom citizenship on this earth, if you are poor in spirit because you are a kingdom citizen, remember this. You are the salt and light of this world. We are influential. God uses clay pots like us to spread the good news of the gospel. And he, by his spirit, changes hearts and draws more people to him who will then go and do the same thing. Don't ever forget that. We are the salt and the light. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that it is by your sovereign grace and mercy that you have saved us through Christ. We are thankful even for the gift of faith that you have given us that we may see Christ for who he truly is. Lord, we pray that we would live out the norms of the kingdom with your help, that you would continue to mold us, to personify those things so that we may be salt and light in Gregory Hills, in the Hermitage, in the MacArthur region, and that in eternity's future that we will see the effects that you had providentially planned through using us clay pots, damaged clay pots, to be salt and light in this world. We thank you for your grace and mercy through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.